two years in the making. The Ruach singers, Amanda, we miss you so much. We send love out to JM and Alana. Nice to have people back. The Soviet Jews would tell the following story. Stalin had died a few years ago, and things had begun to lighten up a bit, and an old Jewish couple that lives in Moscow, in a small apartment, and the husband is sent out to buy some meat for supper. After three hours in line, he gets to the counter, and the woman says, the Jewish capitalist won't sell us any grain to feed the cows, and we have no more meat. And she slams the counter shut. And he loses his patience, three hours in line. And he says, Jews, I fought in the revolution. I fought for Lenin in the first war and for Stalin in the second world war. And a policeman takes him to the side and says, you know, listen, old Jew, you know you can't talk like this. Just think a few years ago, you would have been shot for saying those things. So the old man trudges home empty handed and his wife says to him, did they run out of meat again? And he says, no, it's worse. They've run out of bullets. If you had been in Paris in June of 1985, passing by the Tuileries Garden, you would have noticed a tall bearded man walking in circles. He hadn't slept for days because Paris is abuzz with stories of Jewish finance treachery and fakery. Because the other week, the French Jewish army officer, Alfred Dreyfus, was found guilty of treason. And the crowds were jamming, jamming the streets, screaming, death to the Jews. Theodor Herzl had been sent from Vienna to report on this. And he realizes that he knows this feeling. Because in Vienna, people are also talking about problems with the Jews. And because they always want to appear amenable and correct, the Jews also start talking about a Jewish problem. One Viennese Jew, his name was Otto Weininger, writes a book about how Jews have a pathological warping of their character. Scholars would go on to say that anti-Semitism only took hold at the moment that the Jews began to agree with it. This year, Canadian actor Seth Rogen said he was fed a huge amount of lies about Israel when he was growing up. Jeremy Slevin, who's the communication director for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, opened up on Twitter by saying that the trauma of being given a religious identity with a faraway nation state left him broken. What they mean to say is that the organized Jewish world is a well-oiled propaganda machine covering up the dark truths about Israel and Judaism. Never mind the fact, to save their lives, my school teachers couldn't keep a Purim carnival a secret. But somehow, we're a propaganda machine. People like Jeremy Slevin and Seth Rogen and Peter Beinart 
and progressive Jewish voices want to change the way you talk and feel about Israel, Jews, and Judaism. They want you to shed your white privilege to confront the colonialist project that created and sustains the state of Israel, and most importantly, for you to understand that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. The problem is, as they were saying those things on the BBC, CNN, and of course, CBC, there were people waving Palestinian flags and chanting death to the Jews to diners at a Los Angeles sushi restaurant. People were assaulting Jews in the center of New York City. People were driving through London's Jewish section yelling, rape their daughters, and not to be left out. Canadian Jews were assaulted in clear day in downtown Toronto and Montreal. Cars drove through our neighborhoods, cursing at people and gluing eviction notices to their doors of homes that had mezuzot on them. At this point, I should probably do the expected thing and explain why you have no white privilege, why Israel is not a colonial project, and why Israel is not an apartheid state, why Israel isn't guilty of war crimes, because this is a narrative that fills our universities. It dominates the airwaves that our children and our grandchildren tune into daily. But then I'm reminded about Deborah Lipstadt, the famed Holocaust scholar who was portrayed by Rachel Wise in the movie Denial. Lipstadt was teaching, she writes, when a student said that, or asked, was Auschwitz really propaganda? Boiling and shaking, she started to recite the litany of facts when her non-Jewish teaching assistant stepped in and said to the student, there's no debate here on these facts because this course is not for conspiracy theorists. Lipstadt was stunned that it took a non-Jew to unwire the typical Jewish response to an attack, no matter how absurd it is by trying to prove it wrong. So do I say that Jews have no white privilege because six million white dead Jews say so? Do I say that a colonial project depletes and exports the people and resources for its own good and that Israel has no resources and Zionism was based on bringing people there? Do I say that the term apartheid refers to a country where the minority mitigates the majority from rule and control, which is what the South African white Afrikaners did to the majority blacks for centuries, but that the current Israeli government is comprised of Russian, American, and Moroccan immigrants, the first openly gay minister, nine women, and Arab Israelis, and that the last time I looked at Israel's population of nine million is six and a half million Jews? Or when Israel is accused of occupation, do I say that Gaza was unilaterally vacated by the Israelis in 2005? So obviously and clearly, emphatically, Gazan rocket fire cannot be about occupation because you're not occupied? Or how people say, oh, look how weak and undermanned the Gazans are and how powerful the Israelis are. It must be criminal for a country to attack another one like that meaning that the next time Gaza starts shooting rockets at Ashdod, or Steyrot, Tel Aviv, or Yerushalayim, that we should let them. Because it's always obviously okay when Jews are the ones who die. But the deeper truth is, is that right and wrong, 
just and unjust, ethical and unethical, isn't determined by who is powerful and who isn't. Because if that was the case, people with status and money would be the only ones convicted of crimes. But none of these answers are our answer because they have really little to do with the question and that our question for this morning is anti-Semitism. So please, the next time you think about retweeting a Bernie Sanders meme, remember that Bernie Sanders and former British Labour Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn are best buddies, mutual admirers. Celebrity progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also backed Corbyn in the most recent election, despite the fact that nine out of 10 British Jews, nine out of 10 Jews agreed. That's a remarkable concept. Nine out of 10 British Jews agreed that Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite. But Bernie keeps shaking his hand. And Octavio Cortez's words, the attacks on the Jews, in North America and Europe in May were a reaction to the Israeli attacks in Gaza. People who denounced these attacks as anti-Semitic were told to sit down and shut up. That Zionism and Judaism are separate and distinct. In other words, the good Jews sit quiet and the bad ones hold guns. But if that's the case, if the case is, is that their opposition is to Israel and not Jews, can someone explain to me why Jews are attacked outside of Israel? Thanks to Sigmund Freud, we see their deeper motives and their linguistic slips. A reality star with five and a half million Instagram followers posted in May, these Jewish people are really killing children. Another model, Bella Hadid, who has three times more followers than there are Jews in this world, called Jews greedy before denying she said it. Tweets and posts condemning Israel were followed by a trending hashtag in May and June, hashtag Hitler was right. Funny how you never hear Paris Hilton or Mark Ruffalo tweeting their horror over nine million Muslim Uyghurs being obliterated by the Chinese or the chemical warfare that Assad used in Syria against his own people or the horrific oppression against women and minorities you see in Afghanistan. Because in the eyes of the anti-Semite, in the eyes of the anti-Semite, everything is always about the Jews. And here, in the wake of domestic attacks on Jews, we were witness to two things. When this synagogue was defaced with a Nazi swastika, everyone jumps in because Nazis are easy to condemn, because it's about the memory of stateless and powerless Jews, and because it's about the past. Conveniently, there are no sides to take. But in May, when Jews were being attacked in the streets here, the prime minister of this country was silent for nearly two days, 48 hours before a pasty, nothing blender of words condemning hate in all of its forms, including Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. First of all, there was no Islamophobia in those weeks in early May. And second, I fear to say 
that Mr. Trudeau was afraid to call out anti-Semitism by name and exclusively out of fear as being seen as siding with the Jews. By contrast, weeks later, after the tragic murder of a Muslim family in London, within hours he released a statement calling it an act of Islamophobia and nothing else. A few weeks after that, a Green Party MP who has a history of maligning Israel as an apartheid, genocidal state, left her party because she felt it wasn't critical enough of Israel and walked over to, to Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party. She later said in an interview that there are many Liberal Party members who feel as I do and they're waiting for the time to come out. But don't be shocked. Where did you think all those revisionist, identitarian university graduates were going to go. At some point, you had to believe they would end up governing us. Like I said earlier, anti-Semitism takes hold when Jews start agreeing with it. Now, looking at Jewish history, we see a library of ways that Jews have tried to combat anti-Semitism. One approach was to live separately with the hopes that by avoiding contact, they'd avoid irritating their non-Jewish neighbors. The ghettos of Europe were as much forced on the Jews as they were welcomed by the Jews. Another approach was conversion, thinking that by eliminating your Jewish identity, the hatred would go away. The Jews of 19th and 20th century Germany believed that to a tragic end. And the former Prime Minister of Israel's father, Ben-Zion Netanyahu, carved his academic reputation on the shocking and later much respected idea that the Spanish Inquisition of 1490 wasn't to force the Jews to convert, leave, or die. But the Inquisition of 1490 was to punish the Jews who had already converted because they had integrated so well that it infuriated the church into a murderous rage. And yet for others, the answer to anti-Semitism was to leave altogether thinking that with no Jews around, there'd be nothing to hate. To that point, Amos Oz, the famous Israeli author, pointed out the paradox. He said in Europe, there were first signs telling the Jews to go to Palestine, and now there are signs telling the Jews to get out of Palestine. But back to Paris. Theodor Herzl was pacing in circles. Herzl is a Jew by birth, but was done with it. He didn't even circumcise his son. But that afternoon, he walks back to his hotel room, takes out a pen, and the Jewish world was never to be the same. Reminding us to not believe in a Jewish homeland is not to believe in the Jews as a people. Nine years later, Theodor Herzl dies, and the Jewish world falls into grave despair. And in the town of Brisk, Belarus, there were two men, Zev Dov Ben-Gun and Mordechai Schneiderman, who wanted the synagogue open to say special prayers in Herzl's memory. But the city's renowned rabbi, Chaim Soloveitchik, refused out of fear that the non-Jewish authorities might think that the Jews were insurrectionists. Be quiet, the rabbi told them. So Zev Dov and Scheidemann grabbed an axe, walked over to the synagogue, and tore the shul door down. And who were they? They were the fathers of Menachem Begin and Ariel Sharon. Because they knew that quiet empowers the criminal, 
and it weakens the victim. The hard truth is this problem is different than it has been in years past. In the past, anti-Semitism was top-down. Political leaders, business leaders, cultural leaders, they were the anti-Semitic ones and they told the society how to behave. Today, it's bottom-up. It's grassroots. And these grassroots are telling corporate leaders and political leaders and cultural leaders what the right things to do and say in their world is. Eighty years ago, they said the Jews were capitalists. They also said the Jews were communists. Two hundred years ago, they said the Jews were clannish, and they also said that we were pushing. You won't educate your way out of this because conspiracy theories are never about facts. The only chance that anti-Semitism is ever stemmed is when leaders choose to align the very values of their country with the existence and safety of Jews in it. That the elimination of anti-Semitism is not addressed by condemning all kinds of hate, but discuss that anti-Semitism particularly is inherently deeply linked to, to the belief that otherwise you cannot build a free and democratic society because the sweeping historical proof is that the crumbling starts with the persecution of the Jews. So yes, you have to take a side every time. So take the time to read George Washington's letter of 1790 to the Jews of Rhode Island. Or listen to Boris Johnson's 2019 Hanukkah message to the Jews of Britain. And as you do, remember that George Washington knew no Jews personally, and Boris Johnson has no Jews in his writing. And here, where Jews were assaulted, there will be panels and royal commissions and investigations. But, and you mark my word, just wait until the next Israel-Gaza conflict and watch who runs for cover. And wait for when a large corporate sponsor walks away from the UJA's Walk for Israel. Trust me, it is coming. If you want to stop anti-Semitism, stop anti-Zionism. I am not a member of any political party, nor have I ever donated to a political party, nor from this pulpit have I ever, ever given any direction of whom to vote for. But allow me this. If the safety and future of Jews in Canada concerns you, when election time comes, forget about tax policies, school policies, and free trade. Listen carefully to the people who haven't taken the side and vote for the person who has. And do yourself a favor. Forget your outrage. Stop sending each other emails about this speech or that speech. Forget about how angry you are, how wrong everyone else is, how the world is screwed up, and how no one is listening. Forget it. Because this isn't a warning, this is an omen. Eons ago, on the banks of the river Yavok, our forefather Jacob was alone after moving his entire family to safety. And there on that night, under the darkness of evening, Jacob wrestled with an angel all night long. Try as he did, Jacob couldn't be overcome. And when the morning broke, the angel asked him, Mashimecha, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. To which the angel said, Lo Yaakov Yeme Od Shimecha, Jacob for now one will not be your name.
Kiim Israel, but you are now Israel. Kisirita Elohim va'anashim betuchal, because you have shown yourself worthy of God and man. Jewish tradition asked the question, surely the angel knew his name. And they answered by saying that the man named Jacob could not face the dangers of the world and survive. But the man named Israel could and would. You and I are the descendants of those who wrestled with God and angels and lived to tell of it. So how do I feel on this Rosh Hashanah? I feel ancient. I say to myself, maybe this is historical trauma speaking to me, saying the only danger is the past speaking to us, that now isn't then. Our time here is different. But I am constantly torn between my inherent optimism and the unsettling realization that I am the not-so-distant offspring of people who picked up and left Europe which is to say that I'm a person who exists only because my ancestors made a run for it when they could. And maybe something of that genetically still lives in us, a second sense to ferret out existential danger. But I'll tell you what I don't feel. I don't feel fear. Today I remember the words that Joshua spoke as the children of Israel were about to enter into the Promised Land. Chazak ve'amatz, be strong and brave. Alta rotzva al techat, be neither afraid nor dismayed. Ki imcha Adonai lohecha, because your Lord God is with you. Bechol asher telech, wherever it is that you go. Shana tova matuka. We should all be blessed for a sweet and good and prosperous year, to safety and to health for us, our community, and the inevitable blessings and happiness and joy that will come to the people of Israel. Thank you.